If you would, turn to Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We're going to continue through the book of Exodus this morning. Verse 11, if you would read along with me. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he had or when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it? That you have come home so soon today. They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us, and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, God, as always, I thank you for biblical narrative, Lord, and the stories we see in Scripture, Lord. I pray that this morning we see not just a story of of a man's life, Lord, but we see you, Lord, in your grace, and we see how his life points us to your Son. God, pray. I pray that you're with us this morning, Lord, that your spirit reveals to our hearts, Lord, your grace, your goodness, Lord, your justice, and your sovereignty. Be with us this morning, Lord, as we look at this story, and I pray that we just understand how it fits into the the grand story, the meta-narrative, the large story of Scripture, as it all points to you. In your Son's name, amen. What I read this morning was the early life of Moses, and I really want to focus on this story, this true story, this historical narrative of Moses' life. And I personally love biblical narrative. I love preaching through biblical narrative, and the main reason for that is I'm not great at thinking up of illustrations and stories for scripture, or for my sermons. Um, Some pastors are just really good at telling stories, and... uh, have amazing illustrations. I can think of some. If you ever listen to R.C. Sproul, that guy is a storyteller. He's so entertaining to listen to because he just has these stories. Um, I grew up uh, here at Country Oaks, but I would go to the Bear Valley Youth Group, Bear Valley Church Youth Group, and Kevin, who's the senior pastor there now, and that guy could tell a story. He had a story for everything. Um, I'm not that. (laughs) 
I can't think of stories very often, but I love biblical narrative because it provides the story for you. And the narrative becomes the illustration. And so today I want to look at the story of Moses and really look at the early life of Moses. You can split up Moses' life into three parts. The first 40 years of Moses' life, Moses' time in Egypt, his childhood. The second 40 years of Moses' life, Moses with the Midians, his adult years as a shepherd. And then the last 40 years of Moses' life, Moses in the wilderness with Israel. It's really the rest of the book of Exodus, past the point that we're going to be going over today. The first two parts, first 40 years of Moses' life and the second 40 years of Moses' life, we're going to cover today. That means we're going to be covering 80 years of this man's life in one sermon. Um, And that will be the first two parts of this sermon. But finally, I want to look at a few observations that we see from this text and a few observations from uh, the first 80 years of Moses' life. And we're going to spend most of our time there this morning. So if you would, though, look at verse 11. This is the first 40 years of Moses' life, his time in Egypt. And it says this in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up. That's it. There's 40 years in that one little line right there, in one verse. Verse 11, Moses is 40. And we learn this in Acts 7, actually. Meaning this one verse, there's very little about Moses' childhood. Verse 10, if you look at that, Moses was a, a baby, or he may have been two or three years old. And then verse 11, he's 40. And before I move on and talk about um, this time in Egypt... I do want to point out, as I pointed out last week, the similarities to the Gospels here. Last week, we saw the king of Egypt kill all the newborn babies that were born around Moses' birth. Yet Moses was saved. Very similarly, King Herod killed all the newborn babies born in Bethlehem around the time of Jesus' birth. Yet Jesus was saved. Today, just like Jesus we see that there's not much about Moses' life or his upbringing as a child. There's a lot about Moses' birth, but not much until he's age 40, just like there's a lot about Jesus' birth, but not much until he was around age 30 and started his ministry. Really very little information about Moses' upbringing. But what we do know is that Moses lived a privileged life in wealth and comfort. He was the son of the princess of Egypt, adopted into the most powerful family in the world at that time. We also know that he had a first-class education, and this is not just a guess. That, that's probably what would have happened. Acts 7.21 tells us, it says this, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians which in this time was the best education you can get in the world. He would have learned uh, rhetoric, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, the art of diplomacy, and probably, as we'll see in our text today, hand-to-hand combat. Moses grew up well-educated, privileged, really grew up a, a life of comfort. We also learn in this one verse that Moses knew about his heritage. He was an Israelite, and he knew it. Look at verse 11 again. It says this, One day when Moses had grown up, Moses is 40 at this point, he went out to his people, 
and he looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Remember, Moses is the author of both Genesis and Exodus. He's, he's talking about his own life, and he says the phrase, his people, twice. He, he went out to his people. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew of one of his people. Moses is making it clear to us that he knew he was an Israelite, and he knew his people were being oppressed. Look at verse 11. It says this, again, when he went out to his people, he looked at their burdens. The Hebrew word looked doesn't mean just a glance. It actually gives this idea that he looked intently. He studied. Actually, one uh, Hebrew expert said it's, it's looking with emotion. Moses knew he was an Israelite. He knew his people were oppressed. And my guess, we don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing he probably had a relationship with his mom and his family. Remember, his mom was called to nurse him and really raise him as a baby. Later on, we see that he actually knew his brother Aaron. He knew about his brother. So my guess is he he knew his mom and probably had a relationship with him, and his mom told him about his people, God, and the promises of God that we saw in Genesis leading up to the book of Exodus. And at some point, I think, he realized that God was preparing him to be the deliverer of Israel. Knowing all this, look at the end of verse 11. Again, it says this, And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. In other words, he killed this Egyptian. I don't love the ESV's translation of these two verses. And here's why. In verse 11, the word beating, right? The Egyptian was beating a Hebrew, that word beating. It's the same exact word in verse 12, he struck down. There's not many translations that pick up on this, and it's because English, it's bad grammar to use the same word over and over and over again in a paragraph. Unfortunately, though, a lot of authors in Scripture use the same word over and over again to, to, to prove a point or to make an observation. So the NAT, the NET, the New English Translation, which is actually a new translation, um, it's a good translation. It's very, very word for word. For in the Hebrew and the Greek, says it this way, verse 11, and he saw an Egyptian man attacking a Hebrew man, one of his own people. He looked this way and that and saw that no one was there, and then he attacked the Egyptian. The reason why this is important, it really helps you see the connotation, and I think Moses is doing this on purpose, of the word beating or attacking. Moses saw an Egyptian beating or attacking a Hebrew. This word is used 100 or 498 times in the Old Testament. 300 times it's translated strike or struck. 50 times it's translated struck down or killed. In other words, the connotation of this word is that this was a deadly beating. In other words, it gives the idea if Moses didn't do anything, in other words, if he just ignored what was happening the Egyptian probably would have beaten this man to death. Therefore, Moses saved the Israelites' life by stepping in. And that's important. We're going to see over and over again in this short two uh, portions of scriptures, two uh, paragraphs of scriptures about Moses' life, that he had a zeal for justice. 
He had a heart for the oppressed. But here, what is also important, this was still murder. Moses' zeal and impulsiveness led him to murder. Many people in the history of the church have tried to justify Moses' actions here. This includes John Calvin and Thomas Aquinas. But I agree with Augustine and many others that see this purely as murder. There's a couple of reasons why I think this was murder and not justified. First, he looked around to make sure no one was looking. Right, look at verse 11, or 12 again. It says this, He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. I think he looked this way and that because he knew what he was about to do. And, and I believe that because at the end of verse 12, the second reason I think this was murder is he hid the body. He didn't just bury the body to, to bury it. He buried the body to hide it. It says in verse 12, and he hid him in the sand. Third reason why I believe this was murder is he got scared when people found out and you get this idea that he felt guilty. He was paranoid. Fourth reason I think this was murder is he was accused of murder by the Israelite. And he didn't defend himself. Fifth reason I think this is murder, and this is a actually probably the strongest reason, and the reason I think this is important is that chapters 3 and 4 he didn't feel worthy to be called by God to be the deliverer of Israel. If we know the story, which most of us do, God comes to Moses, and we're going to see starting next week, and says, I, it calls him to be the deliverer of Israel. And over and over and over and over again, Moses makes excuse after excuse after excuse why he shouldn't be called. Yet, in verses 11 and 12, he was more than willing to get involved. Meaning something changed in verses 11 and 12, where he was willing to get involved and be the deliverer of Israel to where he was making excuses. And I really believe it's because he felt unworthy because he was a murderer. It's interesting. Again, remember, Moses is the author of Exodus. One of the very first things we learn about Moses as an adult, right? Two verses in, verse 12, he was a murderer. He was a sinner. Just like all of the fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was unworthy of God's calling. Yet by God's grace, God chose him, God called him, God used him for his glory. I think this is important. I know many people, and I know there's probably many of you in this room right now, that feel unworthy of God. You know why that is? Because you are unworthy of God. <laughs> Romans 3.23 says very clearly, For we have all sinned. We have all sinned. And have fallen short of the glory of God. You are unworthy of God. I am unworthy of God. Just like Moses was unworthy. Just like Moses, you are a sinner. And just like Moses... God is offering you grace. He's offering you grace. In fact, so much so that he sent his son down here to die on the cross for those sins that make you unworthy of God. And whoever puts their faith in his son can have a relationship with him, be called by him, to be used by him. 
Just like Moses, we are all unworthy. It's only by God's grace that we are worthy. Let's look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Again, it says this, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. In verses 11 and 12, we learn that Moses is both zealous, zealous for justice, and foolish. Positively, he identifies with his own people, God's people, and he saves a man's life even. Negatively, he behaves impulsively and commits a terrible crime. Look at verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. I just want to remind you of the context of this passage. This is the very next day after he murders the Egyptian, and two, two Israelites now are fighting, and he, this is Moses, said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? Again, we see Moses' zeal, zeal for justice. He said to the man in the wrong, in other words, he made a judgment. And he confronts not both men, he confronts the man in the wrong. And he says, why do you strike your companion? Again, that word strike's important here. It's the same Hebrew word used in 11 and 12. This man was not just beating and fighting another man, he was beating the man senseless. And Moses confronts him. Look at verse 12, he answers. The man answers Moses. He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? You mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Instead of accepting Moses' judgment, right, and repenting from his wrongness, he tries to put Moses in his place, and he says, who are you to judge me? And sarcastically says, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Now remember, this is just one day later after Moses has killed this Egyptian. If this Israelite knew, in other words, the word has spread, and probably the Israelite that, that lived, the man that Moses saved his life, went around and told everyone that, that this prince of Egypt came and saved his life. If this man knew, it wouldn't be long before the Egyptians knew. And that's exactly what happened, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And that's it. 40 years. Moses' life. Saved as a baby by God. Grows up in Pharaoh's household. Stops a beating of an Egyptian on an Israelite, saves the Israelite's life, but in doing so, murders an Egyptian. And then he flees the land of Midian. It's the first 40 years of Moses' life. Now I want to look at the second 40 years of Moses' life. Moses' life with the Midianites in Midian. I look at verse 15 again. It says this, When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, verse 16. Now the priests of Midian. Let's stop there for a second. The Midians, or the Midianites, were a nomadic people. It's important to know that. In other words, the nomadic people, they didn't have a land. They moved from place to place to place in the desert. Therefore, it's, it's hard to know exactly where the land of Midian is. But who were the Midianites? I think it's important that we know a little bit about them. They're probably descendants of Abraham. We learned about Abraham, the father 
Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Israel. Probably descendants of Abraham. Abraham, after Sarah died, got remarried. Verse, or Genesis 25, verse 1, it says this, Abraham took another wife, this is after Sarah died, took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, and Midian. The Midianites were descendants of Abraham. Therefore, there is a good chance they knew about the one true God. Maybe limited knowledge that has been passed down from Abraham to Keturah and and there all the way down to Midian and then his kids and his kids and his kids. There's a good chance they had a limited knowledge of the one true God. And look at verse 16. It says this, Now the priest of Midian. You're familiar with the story. This is Jethro or uh, Ruel. Both of these names are used for this priest of Midian. Ruel probably is a family name, maybe his dad's name. He had that name. The family had that name until his dad died. Jethro seems to be his personal name. Either way, look at verse 16. It says this, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Now in this culture, it was unusual for a woman to be shepherding sheep. So this was an unusual sight. Probably means Jethro didn't have any sons to, to do this job, only seven daughters. And because of this, there was no sons or men with these seven daughters. Look at verse 17. It says this, The shepherds came and drove them, that's the seven daughters, away. Let me just be clear. These shepherds are bullies. That's who they are and portrayed in this passage. Think about this. If you read the, the context and what's going on in the story, the woman would fill the troughs, meaning they would do all the hard work, and these men, these shepherds, would wait till the troughs were full, and then would come and drive the women and their sheep away and feed their own, or water their own. They drove them, the seven daughters, away to water their own flocks. In other words, they let them do all the hard work and then stole the water from them. Look at verse 17 again. It says, The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Again, we see this zeal, even courage. Right? He was concerned for these young ladies and drove away these shepherds. Again, he probably had some kind of knowledge in hand-to-hand combat, or at least he was a strong guy because he seems to win every fight he gets in. (laughs) He fights off these men. And then on top of that, he waters the seven daughters' flocks. Now I want you to remember this. Moses was royalty. I mean, he just came from the royal household. He spent his first 40 years of life in royalty a proud Egyptian. These foreigners were nobodies. And women back in that day and age had no honor. But Moses had a heart for those that were oppressed. He even fills their troughs for them. Verse 18. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you, you have come, back, or come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water from, or for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell 
with a man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom means something like a stranger there. Moses is now a stranger in a foreign land. And he spends the next 40 years of his life as a foreigner in a foreign land, as a stranger in that land. When we get to chapter 3, we see Moses is 80. Again, there's three parts of Moses' life. You can split it up. 40 years in Egypt, childhood to adulthood, 40 years in Midian, where he got married and had a family, shepherd, 40 years with the Israelites in the wilderness, which is the rest of the book of Exodus. That's the story. In these short passages, it covers 80 years of Moses' life. That's the story. I want to look at some observations of this story. And this, again, is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. I have five observations of Moses in his first 40 years, or first 80 years of life. Five observations of Moses in his first 80 years of life. The first one is this. God was preparing Moses to be the deliverer of Israel. God was preparing Moses to be the deliverer of Israel. We talked about this last week. His first 40 years of life, he's in Egypt, saved by God's grace, saved uh, Moses as a baby, all right, in a basket, floated down the Nile. God providentially worked it out that Moses would grow up in Pharaoh's own household, control of everything, to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter, to be trained and taught by the Egyptians. God was preparing a deliverer. I mean, just think about that for a second. We talked about this last week, but not only was he trained by the Egyptians in in amazing ways, I'm sure, he was trained by his enemy. I mean, think about that. He knew intimately how the Egyptians operated. When he went to confront Pharaoh, he knew Egypt well. God was preparing him for his task. In Moses' second 40 years of life, Think about this. He lived a nomadic with a, mo- a nomadic people, the Midianites, in the wilderness. Meaning he learned how to live as a nomadic people in the wilderness for 40 years. And what did he do for those 40 years? We'll look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was shepherding the flock his father-in-law, Jethro. He was a shepherd. He was a pastor. For 40 years. God was preparing him to lead the Israelites. Right Later on, we learn Israel will become a pneumatic people. Right They leave Egypt, and then they go to the desert, and they wander as a nomadic people for 40 years before they enter into the promised land. Living in the wilderness similarly to what Moses is living in, the Midianites. Moses would would lead them during this time. He would shepherd them as sheep. Not only that, during his time in Midian, he got married and was mentored by a wise father-in-law, Jethro, who was the priest of Midian. In other words, Moses learned how to be a priest. 
Jethro, as we will see, is very influential in Moses' life. Not only that, Moses was a foreigner during this time. Even though he was an Egyptian and he's grown up in Egypt, right, as an Israelite in Egypt, he probably didn't ever feel like a foreigner in Egypt. He grew up in comfort and wealth, prosperity, and acceptance. And, but in Midian, he was a foreigner. Look at verse 22. It says this, She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. And he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. It's really only at this point that Moses, I believe, truly can sympathize with the Israelites who were foreigners in a foreign land. God was preparing Moses, and it took 80 years of preparation before he was ready to use him. You know what this tells me? Preparation for ministry is important. It's important. That's why I think seminary is so important. That's why we are making Zach go to seminary. Just three and a half years learning Greek and Hebrew and a bunch of other stuff. And giving them opportunities to grow. It's the same thing the church did for me. That's why preparing our cross-cultural workers, I believe, is extremely important. I don't think a church does a good job at this either. Not our church, but the church at large. Making sure that our cross-cultural workers are ready for for what they're doing, that they know what a church is and, and what they're supposed to be doing when they get on the field. They need preparation to be ready to go. Verses 11 and 12. Listen, Moses had a desire to be the deliverer of Israel. He was ready to be the deliverer of Israel, but he wasn't prepared to be the deliverer of Israel. He was impatient and got him in a lot of trouble. It would take another 40 years in the wilderness before God was ready to use Moses as the deliverer of Israel. So the first observation that I see in these passages is that God was preparing Moses. The second observation, Moses had a zeal for justice. Right? Real quick, we've already talked about this a little bit. Three times, right? He saves an Israelite's life who probably was going to be beaten to death. He stops a fight between two Hebrews. One was beaten, the other one probably to death. He fought away these bullies who were stealing water from Jethro's seven daughters. He had a zeal for justice. He even was courageous. But it was his impulsiveness and his lack of patience that got him in trouble. Which leads us to a third observation. Again, we've said this. Moses was a sinner. He was a sinner. We already talked about this, so we'll just be real quick. Look at verse 12 again. It says this. He looked this way and that, And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Even though he saved an Israelite's life, he murdered an Egyptian in the process. Moses was a sinner, just like his predecessors. Just like Abraham, just like Isaac, just like Jacob, just like Judah. All sinners, all saved by God's grace. Just like the people that would come after him. David, Solomon, Peter, Paul, all sinners saved by God's grace. Just like each one of us that has put our faith in Christ. 
leads to a fourth observation of Moses, and I think this is one that gets overlooked, so I want to spend some time on this. Moses had faith in God. Moses had faith in God. Moses was a sinner, for sure. But Moses also had faith in God, and I think this gets overlooked by his sin. So I want to spend some time here. If you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. We'll be back in Exodus, so put a bookmarker there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. It's in the New Testament. Verse 24, again, it says this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Again, in Exodus 2, verse 11, Moses saw the oppression of his people. It says in verse 11, Exodus 2, verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked. He studied. He looked with emotion. He saw their burdens. Saw the oppression. At this point, Moses had a choice. He could ignore the oppression, ignore what's happening, and enjoy his life of luxury, peace, and affluence. Or he could choose to risk it all, to sacrifice everything by faithfully following God and identifying with the people of God. He had a choice. Again, look what verse 24 says. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Right? Even though he didn't do it right, right? He was a sinner. It took faith to leave everything behind and follow God. Verse 25, choosing. Again, he made a choice. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Again, Moses could have chosen to do nothing. In fact, all three times he did something, he could have chose to ignore what was happening. To turn a blind eye, to live in comfort, to enjoy the ease of life in this life. But he chose instead to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Just a side note, the pleasures of sin are always fleeting. And I don't want to be clear to an honest, sin is pleasurable or it wouldn't be a temptation, but it's fleeting. In fact, everything that's outside of God in this world is fleeting enjoyment. It's just gone vapor. Look at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Why would he do this? Why would a man in this position sacrifice everything? Why would he sacrifice prestige and royalty Right? Refused to be called the son of, of Pharaoh's daughter. Why would he sacrifice worldly pleasures 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God who at that time were slaves than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why would he sacrifice wealth? I mean, an enormous amount of wealth. He he considered the reproach of Christ, this promised seed that was coming, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why would he sacrifice so much? Why would anyone sacrifice so much? Well, look at the end of verse 26. For he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Listen, that's faith. That's faith. He sacrificed everything because he was looking to the reward. We've made faith some mystical thing that if you you have enough of it, you can make things happen. That's not faith. Faith is saying in your heart, God, I trust you. I have faith that following you will bring more joy than anything this world has to offer. That's faith, at least according to Scripture. In fact, turn one page over to Hebrews 10, verse 6. Go back one page. We should be familiar with this verse in here at Country Oaks. It just flat out tells us what faith is. It says this, and without faith it's impossible to please him. That's God. In other words, without faith you can't please God. It's only through faith that we can please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe, must have faith in two things. One, that he exists. You need to have faith that there truly is a God. The God of Scripture. And that, the second thing, He rewards those who seek Him. That's faith. Faith is believing that following God will bring more joy, a greater reward than anything else this world has to offer. Moses considered He thought through it. He weighed it out. Moses considered the reproach of Christ. Greater wealth. This is a value judgment. He's thinking it out. What's, What's more valuable? Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And during this time, Egypt had a lot of treasures. For he was looking to the reward. Moses was seeking God and he trusted that he would find greater joy in following God than the treasures of Egypt. He sacrificed everything to follow God. You know who this reminds me of? It actually reminds me of Paul. Let me think about that. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says this in verse 7. Whatever, whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, in other words, whatever I had before I started following Christ, whatever gain I had in this life, right, which was a lot for Paul. He, he was in an honored position as a Pharisee. Right? Many people didn't like Pharisees, but everyone wanted to be one. Because they were honored, they were prestigious, they were wealthy. Paul had a lot of wealth. Whatever gain I had, 
I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. It's a value judgment. Indeed, I count everything. You know what everything is? Everything, everything this world has to offer. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth. You know the word worship comes from the word worth. Paul is making a value judgment. What is worth more? Everything this world has to offer or the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, everything this world has to offer is rubbish compared to the worth of having a relationship with Christ. And this is not works-based salvation. I want to be clear on this. It's not that, that Paul was saved because he gave everything up. At this point, Paul was already saved. He was saved by God's grace purely. He was knocked off a horse. He wasn't seeking God. God was seeking him. He, Paul, at this point in his life, is trusting God. He has faith in God. He's willing to sacrifice everything to grow closer to Christ because he loved Christ. He treasured Christ. He was seeking the reward of being joy-filled in Christ. That's why he says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because I'll just be with him. Paul had a hope of a future reward. He had faith in a future reward, and it carried him joyfully through all types of suffering and sacrifices. And if there was anyone that sacrificed more, it was Paul. And there was anyone that was more joy-filled, it was Paul. Just read Philippians. Every other word is the word joy, and that's a prison epistle. It's right in the middle of his suffering. He had a hope of a future reward. In a similar way, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In other words, Moses was all in. Paul and Moses really learned a valuable lesson. It's why I'm spending so much time here. It's something that we all need to understand. Probably the most valuable lesson you can learn, one of them, the younger you are, the better in learning this lesson. Nothing in this life will bring ultimate joy and satisfaction. The treasures and pleasures of this world will only leave you empty. I mean, just think about the people that seemingly have it all. Movie stars, the athletes. Start digging into their lives and they're all miserable. Money won't bring joy, satisfaction. Prestige, the pleasures of this world, won't bring joy and satisfaction. Moses figured that out at some point. Only God can bring satisfying and lasting joy. And Moses said, I'm all in. Paul said, I'm all in. Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt where he was looking to the reward. The reward is joy. Ultimate, ultimate, your ultimate satisfying joy in Christ. The reward is a relationship with God. 
That will be satisfying joy for eternity. Moses was a man of faith. This leads me to my fifth and final observation of the passage this morning. Moses is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. Turn back to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. This is so important that we understand. In fact, there's a major heresy that comes out of the book of Exodus because people don't understand that Moses is a type of Christ. And Moses' life points us to Christ. I hope you've been seeing this because for the last three weeks I've been pointing it out. It's super important in understanding Exodus. And I'll continue to point it out as we continue going through the book of Exodus. Let me just remind you that in chapters 1 and 2, there's a number of allusions that point us back to Genesis. It's one of the reasons we went through Genesis so we can see these allusions and, and... Moses, who's the author of both Genesis and Exodus, wants us to ground what's happening in Exodus in, in Genesis, right? Foundation is Genesis, and Exodus is building off that. It's the continued story of Exodus. We learned that in Exodus 1, 1 through 4. It points us back to Genesis, showing us that Exodus is a continued story of Genesis. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, we spent a lot of time on this last week, is an allusion to the garden. It's hope. Right again, Genesis 1, 28 says this, and God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, but the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong and so that the land was filled with them. Verse 7 points us back to the garden. It's hope hope that one day the people of God will commune again with God in paradise. Verse 7 also points us to the promises made to Abraham, a great nation, right? And not just a great nation, but that this great nation will be a blessing to all nations. It's hope. Again, last week we spent a lot of time on this one verse. But chapter 2, this hope is focused on one person. This hope is seen in Moses. In Exodus 2, verse 2, Moses is seen as a new creation. Look at verse 2, Exodus 2, verse 2. It says this, And the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, that's the ESV. The NASB translates it this way, She saw that he was a beautiful child. The NET, the New English Translation, translates it this way, She saw that he was a healthy child. Those are all good translation with the the word that's being used there. That word can mean all those things, but it also can mean good. So a better translation may be she saw that he was good. What's that sound like? It's the same exact word and construction in the the creation narrative. It points us back to the garden. Genesis 1, God created and saw that it was good. Genesis 1, 4 it says, God saw the light was good. Genesis 1.10, it says, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.12, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.18, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.21, God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.25, God saw that it was good. Exodus 2.2, 2, she saw that he was good. 
something special about the birth of Moses that points us back to the garden that one day God will recreate a new humanity in a new paradise. And it will be good. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, Moses is seen as a new Noah. We talked about this last week. He's placed in a basket. Hebrew word for the basket. It's only used in one other place, Genesis 6 through 9, and it's translated ark. Moses was placed in the ark, just like Noah was placed in the ark. Floats down the Nile, saved from an evil people. In Exodus chapter 2, 15 through 22, what we just went over, we see Moses as a new Jacob. I mean, think about it. Just like the patriarch Jacob, Moses flees from his homeland. He flees from his family even, afraid that they're going to kill him. He comes to a well, encounters female shepherds in distress, which was very unusual. Resolves the problem, waters their sheep, then is taken back to their home, meets their father, and is married into the family. Parallels of Moses and Jacob are numerous and obvious, but the significance is this. Moses is being portrayed as the new hope and the new father of Israel. One commentary put it this way. Moses has the status of being a new father of Israel. He will lead them out of Egypt just as Jacob had led them into Egypt. Therefore, Israel is at the center of God's restoration of humanity, and Moses is the man through whom this work takes place. Moses is being portrayed as the hope of Israel in chapters 1 and 2. But even though Moses is being depicted this way, he is not the ultimate hope of Israel. Moses' life throughout all of the book of Exodus was meant to point us forward to a greater and better Moses. Moses is a type of Jesus. His life is meant to point us to Jesus. And I know this for sure because of Hebrews chapter 3. If you would, turn there and we'll be done this morning. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. In other words, Jesus is the greater and better Moses much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Moses was a faithful servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Christ is the greater and better Moses. Moses 
is a type of Christ. And Moses' life points us to him. It points us to the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15, this promise of a seed that's coming. Moses' life points us to the seed. Moses' life points us to Jesus. Moses' life points us to the true deliverer of Israel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you, Lord, so much again for your word and how engaging it is, Lord. Help us, Lord, as we go through Scripture to see these stories, Lord, as not just moral stories of how to live that aren't connected, Lord, but stories that are connected to a grand story, a meta-narrative, a story written by you. And all of it points us to your Son. Not just him, Lord, but what he did on the cross for us, Lord. The grace he is offering us, Lord. That same grace that was offered to Moses, Lord, a sinner, who was saved by grace. Moses' sins were placed on Jesus' back because he had faith in you in this coming seed. Lord, I pray for us, Lord, that we would have faith in your son, Lord, that there's a there's anyone that's here this morning or is listening online that doesn't know about Jesus or hasn't put their faith in him, that they would do that now. Knowing that that's their only hope, that they're unworthy of you, Lord, outside of him, but in him we are worthy to be called sons and daughters. It's an amazing thought. God, I pray that we have the same, same, same faith that Moses had who is willing to sacrifice everything, Lord, for you. Not because of duty or works, because he trusted that you are good and that there would be a great reward following you. Help us to have that type of faith, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.